This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We like to do things differently here at Radio Parallax than on, say, your more typical radio program. It is the rare radio show, for example, that delves into obituaries. But ever since the earliest days of this program, we thought it was wise on a regular basis to chronicle important lives that were now at an end. So as a case in point for this long-standing tradition, we're going to cite at the top of today's program the passing of a literary giant. Tom Wolfe. This remarkable journalist and writer left us a week ago at age 88. As noted in the About the Author section of, in this case, The Right Stuff, we find the following. Tom Wolfe is generally regarded as one of the most brilliant observers of the American social scene. Since the mid-60s, when post-war affluent America exploded into radically different lifestyles and subcultures, Wolf has been its faithful chronicler with a steady stream of books. The candy-colored tangerine flake streamlined baby, the electric Kool-Aid acid test, the pump house gang, radical chic and mow-mowing the flat catchers, the painted word, and most recently, the right stuff. And although Mr. Wolf is widely known for his association with the new journalism, a style of news writing and journalism developed in the 60s and 70s that incorporated literary techniques, wouldn't you know it, after writing the right stuff, he went on to become a celebrated and successful author of fiction as well. His bonfire of the vanities was met with critical acclaim and also became a commercial success. And as you may know, dear listener, it was adapted into a fine major motion picture. I think it is our duty for the first segment today, and and maybe beyond that, well, actually, surely beyond that, to chronicle the works of Mr. Tom Wolfe. I plan to quote extensively from them because, well, as you will see, they speak for themselves. In some future program, we may talk a bit about the man and his effect on journalism, Perhaps we'll be joined by our good friend, Dr. Andy Jones. He is, after all, Radio Parallax's go-to guy for things literary. I don't feel like talking too much today about Mr. Wolf's life, but I was quite stunned to learn from his obituaries that in his youth, he was quite a noted pitcher. Noted, it was said, for his slider. Who knew that among his other talents, he was also a damned fine pitcher? I don't think it's too much of a stretch to suggest that Mr. Wolf influenced the future course of Radio Parallax, not just by what a great writer he was, but also by who he decided to take a look at. I'm referring, in this case, to General Chuck Yeager. Chuck Yeager was in the history books before Tom Wolf sat down to write the right stuff. And his name was known in aviation circles. But by the time <laughs> Tom Wolf's bestseller, Uh, went through the process of becoming a major motion picture, everybody in the country knew who Chuck Yeager was. When yours truly was to cross paths some years back with Charles Yeager, 
I think the odds are the name would not have rung a bell with me were it not for Tom Wolfe. But because I very much did know who he was, it was my privilege, I would say, to be able to go the extra mile and do something to solve a problem of General Yeager's. I'm happy to say I was able to do this, and directly as a result, we were able to bring him on this program. If you didn't catch that the first time around, we would suggest you go to our archives at radioparallax.com and dial it up. And um, for the first literary reading on today's program, I think I will start with Chapter 3 of Tom Wolfe's The Right Stuff, which is titled Jaeger. Said Tom Wolfe, Anyone who travels very much on airlines in the United States soon gets to know the voice of the airline pilot coming over the intercom with a particular drawl, a particular folksiness, a particular down-home calmness that is so exaggerated it begins to parody itself. Nevertheless, it's reassuring. The voice that tells you as the airliner is caught in thunderheads and goes boiling up and down a thousand feet in a single gulp to check your seat belts because it might get a little choppy. The voice that tells you. Now, folks, uh, this is the captain. Uh, we've got a little red light up here in the control panel. It's trying to tell us that the landing gears are not locking into position when we lower them. Now, I don't believe that little old red light knows what it's talking about. I believe that little old red light they didn't work right. Faint chuckle, long pause, as if to say, I'm not even sure all this is really worth going into. Still, it may amuse you. I get to play it, but I guess to play it by the rules, we ought to humor that little old light. So we're going to take her down to about two or 300 feet on the runway at Kennedy, and the folks down there on the ground are going to see if they can't give us a visual inspection of those old landing gears. And if I'm right, they're going to tell us everything is copacetic all the way around, and we'll just take her on in. After a couple of low passes over the field, the voice returns. Well, folks, those folks down there in the ground, it might be too early for them or something. I expect they still got their sleepers in their eyes because they say they can't tell if the old landing gears are all the way down or not. But, you know, up here in the cockpit, we're convinced they're all the way down. So we're just going to take her on in. And, uh, oh, I almost forgot. While we take a little swing on over the ocean and empty some of that surplus fuel we're not going to be needing anymore, that's uh, what you might see coming out of the wings. And said Wolf, the stewardesses, a bit grimmer by the looks of them than that voice, start telling the passengers to take their glasses off and take the ballpoint pens and other sharp objects out of their pockets. And they show them the position with their head lowered. While down in the field at Kennedy, the little yellow emergency trucks start roaring out in the field. And even though in your pounding heart and your sweating palms and your broiling brain pan, you know this is a critical moment in your life, you still can't quite bring yourself to believe it. Because if it were... How could the captain, the man who knows the actual situation most intimately, how could he keep on drawling and chuckling and drifting and lollygagging in that peculiar voice of his? Well, who doesn't know that voice? And who can't forget it, even after he's proved right and the emergency is over? That particular voice may sound vaguely southern or southwestern, but it is specifically Appalachian in origin. It originated in the mountains of West Virginia, in the coal country, in Lincoln County, so far up in the hollers that, as the saying went, they just had to pipe in daylight. In the late 40s and early 50s, this up hollow voice drifted down from on high, from over the high desert of California, down, down, down from the upper reaches of the Brotherhood, 
into all phases of American aviation. It was amazing. It was Pygmalion in reverse. Military pilots, and then soon airline pilots, pilots from Maine and Massachusetts and the Dakotas and Oregon and everywhere else began to talk in that poker holler West Virginia drawl, or as close to it as they could bend their native accents. It was the drawl, the most righteous of all the possessors of the right stuff. Chuck Yeager. And if, dear listener, you will take the time, and I hope you will, to dial up our interview with General Yeager, I think you'll see what Tom Wolfe was talking about. The general does have an easygoing manner of speech. But I can tell you from personal experience that you never, for one second, lose sight of the fact that this is a serious dude. The whole story of how a select group of test pilots became the first Americans chosen for the Mercury space program, which eventually led to Americans walking on the moon, was definitely flushed out by Tom Wolfe in The Right Stuff. A lot of ink was spilled in telling the whole tale of our race to get to the moon, but Wolfe flushed it out like it had never been flushed out before. I can remember, as a small boy, when seven test pilots were brought before the public as our astronauts. Wolf chronicles in the book in some detail what led up to that famous press conference that NASA held and noted that by the next morning, the seven Mercury astronauts were national heroes. It happened just like that. Though so far they had done nothing more than show up for a press conference, they were known as the seven bravest men in America. They woke up to find astonishing acclaim all over the press. There it was, in the more sophisticated columns as well as in the tabloids and on television. Even James Reston of the New York Times had been so profoundly moved by the press conference and the sight of the seven brave men that his heart, he confessed, now beat a little faster. What made them so exciting, he wrote, was not that they said anything new, but that they said all the old things with such fierce conviction. They spoke of duty and faith and country like Walt Whitman's pioneers. Said Reston, this is a pretty cynical town, but nobody went away from these young men scoffing at their courage and idealism. Manly courage, said Tom Wolfe, the right stuff, and the halo effect. Said Tom Wolfe, why was the press aroused to create instant heroes out of these seven men? This was a question that not James Reston or the pilots themselves or anyone at NASA could have answered at the time because the very language of the proposition had long since been abandoned and forgotten. The forgotten term, left in the superstitious past, was single combat. Just as the Soviet success in putting Sputniks into orbit around the Earth revived long-buried superstitions about the power of heavenly bodies and the fear of hostile control of the heavens, so did the creation of astronauts and a manned space program bring back to life one of the ancient superstitions of warfare. Single combat had been common throughout the world in the pre-Christian era and endured in some places through the Middle Ages. In single combat, the mightiest soldier of one army would fight the mightiest soldier of another army as a substitute for a pitched battle between the entire forces. In some cases, the combat would pit small teams of warriors against one another. Single combat was not seen as a humanitarian substitute for wholesale slaughter until late in its history. That was a Christian reinterpretation of the practice. 
Personally, I think Tom Wolf got that exactly right. These were our brave boys that America was going to pit against those of the Soviet Union. And since American rockets at that particular point in time had this very nasty habit of blowing up, I think pretty much everybody saw these young seven Americans as genuine heroes. Now, it should be noted that someone who has passed over for the astronaut corps, despite being widely regarded as possibly the best pilot in the Air Force, the man they chose back in 1947 to break the sound barrier, well, that same Chuck Yeager was not included in that new batch of American heroes. About the time America was being introduced to its new set of heroes, some reporters found their way to Chuck Yeager. In fact, as Tom Wolfe describes, he was in Phoenix to make one of his many public appearances on behalf of the Air Force. He knows that by this time, the Air Force couldn't publicize Yeager, breaker of the sound barrier, enough. Noting that like other branches of the service, the Air Force now saw that there was nothing like heroes and record holders for getting good press and winning appropriations. The only problem was that in terms of publicity, every other form of the flyer was now overshadowed by the Mercury astronauts. And so it was that Yeager, down in Phoenix doing his publicity tour, was approached by a couple of reporters who wanted to ask him about, yeah, right, the astronauts, naturally. One of them got the bright idea of asking Yeager if he had any regrets about not being selected as an astronaut. Yeager smiled and said, no. They gave me the opportunity of a lifetime to fly the X-1 and the X-1A, the planes involved in breaking the sound barrier. And that's more than a man could ask for right there. They gave this new opportunity to some new fellers coming along, and that's what they ought to do. Besides, he added, I've been a pilot all my life, and there won't be any flying to do in Project Mercury. Notes Tom Wolf. No flying? That was all it took. The reporters looked stunned. In some way they couldn't comprehend immediately, Jaeger was casting doubt on two undisputable facts. One, that the seven Mercury astronauts were chosen because they were the seven finest pilots in America, and two, that they would be pilots on the most daring flights in American history. The thing was, he said, the Mercury system was completely automated. Once they put you in the capsule, that was the last you got to say about the subject. Tom Wolf denotes the reporter's reactions as, What? To which Jaeger added, Well, a monkey's going to make the first flight. A monkey? The reporters were shocked. It happened to be true that the plans called for sending up chimpanzees in both suborbital and orbital flights identical to the flights the astronauts would make before risking the men. But to just say it like that, was this national heresy? What the hell was it? Notes Tom Bull. Fortunately for Jaeger, the story didn't blow up into anything. The press, the eternal Victorian gent, just couldn't deal with what he had said. The wire services wouldn't touch the remark. It ran in one of the local newspapers, and that was that. But for Christ's sakes, Jaeger was only saying what was obvious to all the rocket pilots who had flown at Edwards. Here was everybody talking as if the Mercury astronauts would be the first men to ride rockets. Jaeger had done that precisely more than 40 times. 
15 other pilots had done it also, and they had reached speeds greater than three times the speed of sound and an altitude of 126,000 feet. The very next month, Scott Crossfield would begin the first testing of the X-15, designed for a pilot, a pilot, not a passenger, to take up to more than 50 miles into space at speeds approaching Mach 7. All of this should have been absolutely obvious to anyone, even people who knew nothing about flying, and surely it would become clear that anybody in Project Mercury was more of a test subject than a pilot. Leave it to Tom Wolfe to talk to people like Chuck Yeager and others at Edwards Air Force Base, in addition to all the astronauts and their wives and people at NASA to round out this picture in a rather hilarious way. I know, that it's a matter of historical record, that Alan Shepard was to make the first American suborbital flight in a capsule that didn't even have a window. In fact, it was only after the astronauts insisted that they should be able to at least look out the window that NASA (laughs) relented and did provide one for them. It's a good movie, and if you've never seen it, I recommend that you consider doing so, but it's an even greater book. And like so many great books, contains far more information than you could possibly expect to see up on the silver screen. Mr. McMillan and I were privileged at one point to, to sit down and have lunch with General Chuck Yeager, and he told us about how he had informed Tom Wolf about a great deal he, he didn't know about. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that one of those things might be what you find at the end of Chapter 3 in The Right Stuff, which is as follows. The commanding officer at Edwards passed the word around that he wanted his top boys, the test pilots and fighter ops, to avoid Project Mercury because it would be a ridiculous waste of talent. They would just become spam in a can. This phrase, spam in a can, became very popular to Edwards as the nickname for Project Mercury. And somebody else that Tom Wolfe put before the American public, as he had never been put before, was the celebrated author Ken Kesey. Newsweek called the electric Kool-Aid acid test an American classic, and it surely is that. Allow me to excerpt, please, from that book's first chapter. Said Tom Wolfe, Almost all I knew about Kesey was that he was a highly regarded 31-year-old novelist and in a lot of trouble over drugs. He wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, 1962, which was made into a play in 1963, and Sometimes a Great Notion, 1964. He was always included with Philip Roth and Joseph Heller and Bruce J. Friedman and a couple of others as one of the young novelists who might go all the way. Then he was arrested twice, for possession of marijuana in April of 1965 and in January of 1966, and he fled to Mexico rather than risk a stiff sentence. It looked like as much as five years as a second offense. At this point, I have to pause and look back at 1965 and contemplate the fact that Ken Kesey was risking five years in prison for a second offense related to marijuana which is now, in the state of California, legal. Kesey's new journalistic approach captured so much of, uh, of eras that have now passed that I think they will be uh, studied closely by historians in the centuries to come. Although I have a fear that, like the works of Shakespeare, a lot of it will be subject to misinterpretation. 
That is a subject I hope we will take up with Dr. Andy in a future installment of this program. But continuing with Tom Wolfe, one day I happened to get a hold of some of the letters Kesey wrote from Mexico to his friend Larry McMurdy, who wrote Horsemen Pass By, from which the novel HUD, from which the movie HUD was made. They were wild and ironic, written like a cross between William Burroughs and George Ade, telling of hideouts, disguises, paranoia, fleeing from cops, smoking joints in the ratlands of Mexico. There was one passage written in the third person as a parody of what the straight world back in the U.S. must think of him now. Quoting from Kesey, Once an athlete so valued, he'd been given the job of calling signals from the line and risen into contention for the nationwide amateur wrestling crown. Now he didn't know if he could do a dozen push-ups. Once possessed of a phenomenal bank account and money waving from every hand, now it was all his poor wife could do to scrape together $8 to send as getaway money to Mexico. But a few years previous, he'd been listed in Who's Who and asked to speak at auspicious gatherings. What was it that had brought a man so high of promise to so low a state in so short a time? Well, the answer can be found in just one short word, my friends. In just one all well-used syllable. Dope, said Tom Wolfe. I got the idea of going to Mexico and trying to find him and do a story on young novelist, real-life fugitive. I started asking around about where he might be in Mexico. Everybody on the hip circuit in New York knew for certain. It seemed to be the thing to know that summer. He's in Puerto Vallarta. He's in Ajijic. He's in Oaxaca. He's in San Miguel de Allende. He's in Paraguay. He just took a steamboat from Mexico to Canada, and everybody knew for certain. I was still asking around when Kesey sneaked back into the U.S. in October, and the FBI caught up with him on the Bayshore Freeway south of San Francisco. An agent chased him down an embankment and caught him, and Kesey was in jail. So I flew to San Francisco. I went straight to the San Mateo County Jail in Redwood City, and the scene in the waiting room there was more like the stage door at the Music Box Theater. It was full of cheerful anticipation. There was a slight hassle with the jailers over whether I was to see him or not. The cops had nothing particular to gain from letting me in. A reporter from New York? That just means more publicity for this glorified beatnik. That was the line on Kesey. He was a glorified beatnik up on two dope charges. And why make a hero out of him? But evidently they relented. The elevator opened right onto a small visiting room. It was weird. Here was a lineup of four or five cubicles, like the isolation booths on the old TV quiz shows, each one with a thick plate glass window, and behind each window, a prisoner in a blue prison work shirt. They were lined up like haddocks on ice. Outside each window ran a counter with a telephone on it. That's what you speak over in here. A couple of visitors had already hunched over the things. Then I pick out Kesey. He's standing with his arms folded over his chest and his eyes focused in the distance. He looks a little like Paul Newman, except he's more muscular, has thicker skin, and he has tight blonde curls boiling up over his head. I pick up my telephone, and he picks up his, and this is truly modern times. We are all of 24 inches apart, and there is a piece of glass as thick as a telephone directory between us. We might as well be in different continents talking over video phone. The telephones are very crackly and low-fi, especially considering that they have a world of two feet to span. Naturally, it was assumed that the police monitored every conversation. And Tom Wolfe describes a conversation that doesn't give him a great deal to work with, from a writer's standpoint. But 
from this first meeting, he is pulled into the orbit of Ken Kesey and then chronicles the goings-on surrounding this uh, one-man circus, including what was going on around La Honda, California, a place I know well. It's located in the Redwoods, about 15 miles or so inland from San Gregorio Beach and Half Moon Bay. It's all quite an adventurous tale I cannot do justice to in the couple minutes we have remaining. Woven into the tale are refugees from Jack Kerouac's Beat Generation, people like Allen Ginsberg, Jack Cassidy, who wound up driving the school bus made so famous by Kesey's Merry Pranksters, and The Grateful Dead, which became kind of the house band of this operation. Now, as you may or may not know, Ken Kesey became acquainted with a new military drug titled LSD while he was working at the Palo Alto Veterans Administration Hospital, which called for volunteers to test out some, <laughs> some new pharmaceuticals. And how it was the Pentagon and CIA thought LSD would make a terrific weapon of mass destruction is a topic we could devote an entire show to. But instead, I just want to close noting that Back in 1964, when this whole thing was getting revved up, Kesey and his gang bought an old school bus in Menlo Park, painted it in day-glow colors, grabbed a movie camera, and decided to chronicle their adventures traveling across the United States, dropping acid along the way. Tom Wolfe describes one memorable moment when (laughs) this cross-country tour reaches Phoenix, Arizona. Keep in mind, this is during the 1964 election excitement. And wouldn't you know it, they were in Barry Goldwater's hometown. So Kesey's Merry Pranksters put a streamer on the bus reading, a vote for Barry is a vote for fun. Noted Tom Wolfe, and they put American flags up on the bus, and Jack Cassidy drove his bus, and Jack Cassidy drove the bus backward down the main drag of Phoenix, while Hagen recorded on film and the flags flew backwards in the windstream. I highly recommend that you consider reading this book if you have never done so, and if you did so a while back, you might want to read it again. I remember many years ago seeing an interview with Tom Wolfe where someone complimented him over the fact that he describes in the electric coolant assay test what an LSD trip is like. Wolfe, however, never took LSD, and in fact admitted to smoking marijuana only once. When asked by the interviewer how it was that Tom Wolfe had managed to so uncannily capture the essence of an LSD trip without actually experimenting with the drug himself, Wolfe answered, talent. All right, I'm enjoying myself immensely talking about Tom Wolfe and reading from his book, so I think we're just going to spill this over into segment two. I'm Douglas Everett. You are listening to... Radio Parallax. I lit up from Reno. I was trailed by 20 hounds. Didn't get to sleep that night till the morning came around. Set out one, but I take my time. A friend of the devil is a friend of mine. I get home before daylight. Just might get some sleep tonight. Ran into the devil, baby, no need. Spent the night in Utah in a cave up in the hills Set out running but I take my time A friend of the devil is a friend of mine I get home before daylight Just might get some sleep tonight 